Good to be with you this morning. Put a smile on your face. Take your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you have little ones through grade 3 and you'd like them to be in Children's Church, they can be dismissed right now. And for the rest of you, let's, let's dig in in our time today. It's, it's a great week, isn't it? If you have students in school, they get to be off next week and you get to spend some time with them and enjoy their company and life slows down just for a little bit. Hopefully you'll get a few days off and maybe traveling. How many are traveling somewhere? You're going somewhere on Thanksgiving, going to see mom and dad, going to see grandpa and grandpa, grandpa and grandma. Some of you are already gone. I know Wisby's and a number of others have already left. God's plan for a healthy church, a study through uh, the books of First and Second Corinthians, the highs and lows of ministry. Several weeks ago, we began this study through Second Corinthians 6, 1 through 18. And we titled it, The Highs and Lows of Ministry. And we asked a question as we started this passage, just very simply from Paul's introduction to it. And the question was based on his statement from verse 4. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. It's a, it's a daunting statement. And the question really is, how was Paul commended as a servant of God? Because however Paul was commended as a servant of God, if we're instructed uh, through the scriptures, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, and those things are given to us as an example, then the question is very relevant, and anyone who then works together with him, as we see in verse 1, in the ministry of reconciliation, as an ambassador, which is everybody's job, then this question then lands on us, how are we commended as a servant of God? Ministry service is full of highs and lows, and full of disappointments and discouragements, along with wonderful blessings, and so... In the middle of all of that, Paul keeps his balance, and we were able to begin to answer that question as we've worked our way through over the last several weeks, as Paul lists off some of the reasons why they should recognize that he is a servant of God, because this is an actual letter written to a church trying to convince them, hey, you should be accepting me as I am a faithful minister, Then he gives the reasons, and he's pointed out some of the things that he's been through, and uh, choices that he has made to sacrifice on their behalf. And part of Paul's intent in the instruction is so that the Corinthian church would commend him. And during that process with Paul, then, we get informed about how we are committed in the ministry and also how to keep our balance in the highs and the lows of ministry. So that blessing is double as we understand these things and are able to apply them. And we pointed out early in our study of this passage the general heading for the first nine circumstances that Paul finds himself in and Paul had to deal with and that he used to commend himself to ministry is found in much endurance. We see that that is um, hupomone, that's patient endurance in whatever comes. So the overall heading in whatever comes along or whatever response he has to make, it's in patient endurance in those things. So you can just take that as unspoken, but all the way through it's implied that this is what it looks like and, and it'll, it will take us really into the next nine responses to hardship which is where we left off last time and we saw that begins in verse six so i'd like you to look there if you would verse six paul says impurity in knowledge in patience in kindness in the holy spirit in genuine love verse seven in the word of truth in the power of god by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left so on the experience side then as we looked over the last several weeks we see very simply that the minister of God is commended by his ability to endure the hostility and the hardship that may come in the course of ministry and he named off uh, nine of those things they may come as a result of circumstances they can come as a result of enemies of the truth uh, but either way the minister remains faithful that's the experience side. He endures the hostility. He endures the hardship. And then on the response side, we've begun to see that the minister of God is committed by never wavering from these responses to hardship. Now, these are not surprising words for you in these responses. Many of these are spiritual gifts. They are fruits of the Spirit. It's not a surprise that they should be present in Paul's life. It's not a surprise then that it should be present in ours. And the responses begin there in verse 6 and verses 4 and 5 talk about the experience verses 6 and 7 begin to deal with response but the commendation is the same the minister endures through all of those things and it doesn't matter what the situation is it doesn't matter what the difficulty is the attack he endures uh, that's how you commend yourself now these next nine are all choices again so they are present in your life uh, the way that they manifest themselves then to be a matter of degree and so we looked at that 
as well. You can kind of get a barometer about where you are and how you're responding to the things that are happening to you and know how you kind of stack up as uh, being committed to the ministry. We can choose, of course, as we look at these responses to respond differently. And, of course, that's the whole point of why they're there, because it may be differently. You may be responding differently than what we see. Uh, that is part and parcel of a lot of the exhortation that we see. Paul in Romans chapter 6, remember he says, present your bodies as instruments of righteousness. Do you remember that? Present your bodies as instruments of righteousness. And that applies perhaps that that may not be going on right now, but that is to be the case. And so we can always see that here, and, and experientially we don't have to have anyone tell us that, do we? Because we understand how that all works out. So these responses are part then of, of uh, choices and we can re choose to respond differently. But the more our responses look like this, the more we are assured of our sanctification. So there's some work going on through the Holy Spirit by the Word of God that's changing us into the image of Christ. That is the whole point of the journey of Christianity is to be changed into the image of Christ. So just obviously these responses have to do with maturity. Uh, these responses are part of, of the preparation that sanctification brings in the life of the believer uh, to equip them for the highs and lows of the ministry of reconciliation, uh, the position as an ambassador of Christ. And so we have, as we said many times before, they'll be true in the life of the believer. So their manifestation is then a matter of degree. So we looked at the first three. We'll look at them very briefly and then move on. So uh, we'll just barely touch on them this morning. You can catch up with these very important response habits from last week if you missed them. But just obviously, Paul shows us through his responses to whatever comes along that the believers are enabled to overcome only when they develop their spirituality. So when the pressure's on, when the deadline is due, when uh, hardship comes, when uh, it, it's a health issue, uh, when something is out there and waiting for you, this, this is important, see? What response is coming? Is it the response of patience? Are you enduring in pressure? Because the Lord expects you to endure under pressure. So you get this sense of where you are in your walk with the Lord and whether you're just very infantile in your understanding of God and, and what he can do or where you begin to understand in maturity that your responses in patience, your responses in not worrying, your responses in, in, uh, in, in peace and all those kinds of things we're going to see, these are responses of a mature believer. This is what it's supposed to look like no matter what the pressure may be on the outside. So Paul just shows us then through his responses to whatever comes that believers are enabled. You can do this. And that's not a surprise, is it? See, when you develop spiritually, you begin to be able to manage these things in a way that you look at other people and you think, how can you manage that hardship? How, how are you getting through all of that? How's that pressure working out for you on a daily basis? You know, I know that you're under this. I know you don't have a job. I know that you, uh, you're under a health scare. Whatever it is, and, and you see people very patiently praising the Lord glorifying him in, in, a, in a manner that's worthy of him. And you're like, okay, well, this is what it's supposed to look like, and this is what maturity begins to look like in the life of the believer. And many times you can't really tell where it is, can you, until the pressure's on, until the deadline's there, until the hardship comes, and then you realize where the individual is and where you are. So spiritual maturity is the mark of a growing believer. Spiritual maturity has as its fruit, and the fr uh, has fruit, and the first one that came along instructs us we should be dealing with whatever comes along in purity. I loved how Paul starts with this. He starts with some general ones that are, are supposed to be true about every part of your life. But this one uh, particularly is true. Hagnotes. Uh, it's rendered from the adjective hagnos, meaning holy, set apart. And whatever comes, you're supposed to be set apart in purity. Your responses are pure. Uh, that's free from the stain of sin, not contaminated. It's a really comprehensive word. Uh, if you think about it, it, it uh, it's at the top of the positive list because it really is so very, very important. But the word is rendered pure, and we looked at a number of passages to understand the sense of this pattern of, of life. And we saw in Philippians 4 that dwelling on things that are pure is really a non-negotiable command from the Lord. Middle imperative, whatever things are pure, you dwell on those. If you're having difficulty in your life in having a response in purity, and that reveals that you're not dwelling on things that are pure. And that is a choice that you make. And so it implies, as we said before, if you're having a difficult time with that, you might not have been dwelling on those things, but in order to respond in purity, you're gonna to have to dwell on things that are pure. This response then, again, is a choice, correct? And do you wanna grow in respect to your maturity in Christ? Then begin choosing those kinds of things. See, in particular here, our passage to dwell on things that are unstained, pure, holy things. Your life pattern is a pattern of purity, of keeping your life unstained from sinfulness, patterns of behavior that are shameful, uh, and that's a tough battle, one that you engage in 
uh, every day in a defiled world. So Paul was commended to them because he endured impurity. He has a life pattern of purity then, not that he doesn't sin, but he deals with those things. He's taking captive every thought. He's doing the work uh, that it takes to get there. And, and we know from 1 John 3, 3 that God has the same expectation of you. If you're expecting Jesus to come, you're expecting to be like him, then those who have that hope purify themselves. What is the rest of it? Just as he is pure. See, So you're doing that as a life habit. And you do it so that there will be no reproach, and there's not going to be any blame, and there's not going to be any shame, and you're going to be engaged in enduring impurity to the end. And then we saw that we're to endure in difficult times, keeping our balance, our equilibrium in knowledge. In knowledge. And again, we, we, I, we encourage you all the time to be in the Word of God. Uh, I didn't this morning, but I have over the last several uh, months, m- multiple times, that you should be in the Word each day. There's no, it's not possible for you to respond in knowledge because this knowledge, this gnosis, is based on what the Word of God says. It's to come to know in the verb form, to arrive at an understanding, so there's a definitive answer. Everything's not just in the wind, you know. There are right answers. There are correct, absolute truths, and the Word of God gives those to us. The answer to some subject matter is very clear, and knowledge for Paul means the revelation of God in Christ granted to the believer which grounds them in the truth and then they turn around and they disseminate that and we understand what the word of God says about Christ through his word uh, by reading it daily taking it in and exercising those things and Paul lists knowledge in our passage because he knows that he's been able to deal with the rigors of ministry he's been able to deal with the hardships uh, the suffering because he knows what the word of God says about those things see and again that's an approach that you can take that's uh, it's prophylactic isn't it you know that life's going to throw at you difficult things. You understand that you're supposed to endure in pressure. And so you prepare yourself. You understand those things are going to come. The word is very clear about that. And so you're prepared then for what's going to come. And you're not saying, why me, Lord? Why is this always the case? Why, why, is, why am I going through this? Why am I having a hard time? Instead, that's not, the, that's not what the Lord wants to squeeze out of you. And not that vinegar of those kinds of answers. But in, uh, the, the wine of, Lord, thank you for counting me worthy of this. I don't understand it. Uh, I'm uncomfortable here. But Lord, I want you to squeeze out of me what you want to see. And those are the ways that we do that. And so he knows uh, the end of all who bring difficulty to the believer. You read that in the word of God. When you're having a hard time caused by someone else, you can be sure that the Lord knows how to punish the ungodly, right? You can't read 1 Peter without knowing that the Lord clearly knows how to punish the ungodly. He knows the end of all who uh, do those kinds of works of wickedness. He knows the end of all who do wickedness in secret. And he... He understands all of that. He keeps track of all of it. Every stripe, every blow that's been laid on the, the head or the back of a believer around the world today, the Lord knows who gave it. He knows how to punish those who did it. And so this is what the Word of God teaches you. And so you understand that vengeance is, and he knows how to repay, right? And sometimes that's the only satisfaction you can get, is the Lord knows how to repay. He hasn't, he hasn't lost track of any of that. And he'll take care of that. So the word of God informs you all the time. It's informing your conscience, as we've talked before, so that you have the correct information there. You can respond then uh, as you should. He knows how to reward those waiting uh, for his presence and those who persevere. He knows how to reward that. He knows how to reward those who endure hardship. And so those are comforts to you, but they only come by way of knowledge of the word of God. And God give, that knowledge gives us stability, knowing God's purposes. As J.I. Uh, Packer is noted for saying, uh, quote, if we know God's purpose for us, then we can accept the things that come with the knowledge that they are, catch this, therapeutic workouts planned by a heavenly trainer who's resolved to get us up to full fitness, end quote. I love that quote. I'll say it again. J.I. Packer says, if we know God's purpose for us, then we can accept the things that come with the knowledge that they are therapeutic workouts planned by a heavenly trainer who's resolved to get us up to full fitness, end quote. Seems obvious enough, right? It's not groundbreaking things. So an understanding of sinful men, a grasp of the strategies of Satan, these are all parts of knowledge of the scripture, an understanding of the gospel and how to effectively present it, what the gospel actually is, and then presenting that correctly. Knowledge of the word will keep you from error. It's going to keep you from being deceived or led astray. Knowledge of the word of God commended Paul as a minister. And he may, remember I told you last time, they criticize him for how he looks. They criticize him for uh, how he speaks. But when it came right down to it, he said, you, you may criticize those things, but you cannot criticize the knowledge. The knowledge committed him to them. I gave you the correct things, and it's going to commend you to the degree to which you know what the Word of God says, and you act on it. We saw that this next one, uh, then, is as we just move through this third one, is a fruit of the Spirit. In order to be committed to the church as a minister of reconciliation, your response in hardship is going to be in patience. 
You're like, man, everything but that. Macrothumia, you know, it's, it's translated forbearance. It's translated long-suffering. Uh, it, it's, this is the quality of self-restraint in the face of provocation. I mean, it can really be applied there uh, where somebody's provoking you and you are self-restrained. It doesn't hastily retaliate or promptly punish. We see this as an example all the way through the scriptures as the Lord deals with people. And so it becomes then the gold standard for us as we understand this is one of the responses. It's, it's also a fruit of the Spirit, so it's supposed to be visible. Uh, as you grow, that fruit becomes visible. It's the opposite of anger. It's many times associated with mercy. So patience and mercy, merciful patience. We're reminded from 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, that love is patient. Some translations have it, love suffers long. That captures it, doesn't it? Love suffers long. Love is kind. It's not jealous. It doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. keeps no record of wrong. I mean, just those things, beloved. As you think about your family, as you think about the people you deal with on a regular basis, love suffers long. We're so used to just bringing in the very short fuse, aren't we? Uh, just coming in and saying, okay, I'm out of here because this, you know, this, this just doesn't, this is not going to cut it. And, and that word patience here, as we looked at illustrations last time, mostly has to do with a response to people who generate the hardship. People. Response of patience to people. See, uh, Paul, people who test your patience. Paul had to deal with all kinds of people connected to all kinds of unique situations. And Paul commends himself to the church because in all of it, he was patient. Patient because he knew he had ministry among them. See, the ministry of reconciliation. So he has to be patient. He can't just pack it up and walk out. And it's likely that he always remembered the patience God showed him. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 is a good reminder for us as we think about being patient with people. Paul says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a trustworthy statement deserving a full acceptance. That's why Jesus came. If you're unclear, perhaps, in your worldview why Jesus came to earth, that clarifies it for you. He did a lot of stuff. He was a wonderful teacher. He did a lot of good things. But those are not the reasons. That's not the reason why he came. Why did he come? He came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul says, he adds, among whom I am foremost of all. So Paul just puts himself at the top of the pile. He understands Christ came to, to save sinners and he's there at the top. Verse 16, yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me, in the foremost, mark this, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. In dealing with Paul, Jesus put up with all kinds of stuff. He endured Paul's arrogance, his pride, his blasphemy, his rampages, his persecution of believers, his arrogance, all of that stuff, see? And that was never far from Paul's mind. This idea that, you know, he knows better, or the Messiah is, no, is just a fairy tale and all that. Listen, the Lord was pretty clear about that. And Paul says, he endured in patience until I came to faith. And that's the example of what the patience it's supposed to look like in the ministry. And so Paul knew what it looked like to endure in patience, especially with this Corinthian church. He tells them that this patience commends him to them, and it goes without saying, God requires this response of enduring patience in difficult times and the hardships and difficult people from you. If you want to be committed in ministry, patience is going to have to be part of the fruit of the Spirit that's visible in your life. And you should be motivated by the fact that you are a recipient of the patience of God. You came to faith as a result of that patience and to the degree that it is visible in your life as a response, to that degree, you're commended, see? And to that degree, uh, you are mature in your walk with the Lord. That's really what maturity looks like. These things are maturity. You can't call yourself mature because you've been a, a Christian for 40 years. If you have these things visible in your life and you're acting on them, then you are mature. Otherwise, you're just a really old baby in Christ. See, we don't want to be that. Now let's look at the next three. Second group of three listed here. Uh, the next one, uh, well, verse six starts, in kindness. Second Corinthians 6, 6, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love. First down listed there, Christoteta, excellence, uprightness. That's the idea of kindness. Translates gracious once, virtuous, good. The idea of kindness, again, a spiritual gift, spiritual fruit of the Spirit, rather, uh, the word gentleness captures some of its meaning. It's an interesting word, this word kindness. The essence of the word has to do with how he responded to people. No matter if they were unkind to him, he was kind to them. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, the Apostle Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. So two words are used here of the fruit of the Spirit, kindness and goodness. 
they are closely related. In fact, you see these words in the New Testament, particularly in commentators, they will, they will use goodness to describe kindness, and they will use kindness to describe goodness. But they are separate, and I want to kind of parse that out for you here so you can get the idea. The verb form of kindness has to do with fit for use. So in the verb form of kindness, it has to do with something that fits the purpose it was designed to fit. And that gives us, I think, a hint of how kindness works. So we're talking about a thought process in place, catch this, that responds to people with appropriate words or actions that fit the situation. That's kindness. Now, goodness is great, and you may do acts of goodness to people, and those are physical acts that you do where you meet a need and and you see that it's there and you can do that, but kindness has to do with an idea that you care enough about the situation or you understand somebody well enough that your response fits it. That's kindness. Whatever that response is, it fits it, see? And, of course, in the sense of what is upright and righteous. Okay, so it's, you're not responding in kind, uh, obviously. You're responding in kindness. Now, we can see in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, which is right there at the bottom of the screen. So then while Paul says we have opportunity, he says, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So this gives us an idea of good. So the doing of good has to do with meeting needs and doing things that are useful to the other person. And those types of good things, catch this, would need to rely on kindness in order to be appropriate, wouldn't they? So you'd have to be able to evaluate what would be the perfect thing to do for them. That's the kindness approach. And then the goodness is doing those kinds of things, see? And they're different. Um, And here in 2 Corinthians 6, 6, Paul is commended to the church because he endured in kindness, see? And... As you think about responses when dealing with hardship, you are, it says, commended to the degree that this spiritual fruit of kindness appears in your life and you endure in it. So it's gonna take a thoughtfulness on your part, see. As you think about other people, it's easy to retaliate kind of in kind. It's easy to go through a self-talk process where all they've done is ever treated me unkindly. You know, all the, all the responses have been harsh. And then you turn around and you say, okay, well, then I don't really owe them anything. But what the, what the Lord says to us very clearly is that you have to endure in kindness, which is an evaluation of what's appropriate in righteousness and, and holiness and goodness. And then you respond in that way, see. And we know from our study of the letters and his life that a lot of unkind things were said uh, about Paul. A lot of unkind things were done to Paul. So how is it here that he never retaliates? I mean, it would seem like he would, it would be appropriate to retaliate, right? At some point, the secret, which is no secret, is that Paul understands that God is both patient and kind with people. He's both. Many of the people in the Corinthian church didn't remember this. Last week, we looked just briefly at Romans chapter 2, verse 4. I'm just going to pull it up again. Romans 2, 4, Paul brings good people or moral people, people who have an upright life, who would consider themselves better than the average person as far as morality goes. They've got their life squared away. They don't do some of the things that you read in the news and they, and they don't do it on the side and they're, they're very generous people and kind and a good neighbor, what kind of, that kind of thing. Paul takes moral people, good people, he takes them to the point of Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Paul, as he works through Romans, he just pretty much takes every people group and brings them to that starting line. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No matter what you might think about yourself, this is where you are. And one of the things that uh, they do is this. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he says that good moral people think lightly. Catch this. They think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because they pretty much think they've got their act together anyway, right? I mean, they're a good neighbor. They do good things. They live a good life, you know, whatever. Provide for their family, that kind of thing. And they think lightly of the riches of his kindness and his tolerance and patience. It means, really, this is the idea, Paul says, as he brings this to their attention. It means to despise or to grossly underestimate the value of something. Failure to assess true worth. Because they don't care about that, right? They don't think about the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience. They don't think about God at all. But they certainly don't think that those things are valuable. But the word says that they are. And the word riches is simply the wealth of God, which he shares with all men. Just as a footnote for a reminder, as you think about the wealth God shares with all men, every person alive in the world today has personally experienced the riches of God. Did you know that? Every single person. And they experience it in every breath that they take. God gives them rain. 
He gives food to eat. It's very clear from the word of God that the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. That takes in a pretty big swath, doesn't it? The Lord owns everything. Everything was made by him. Without them, nothing was made that was made. Okay, so it's a pretty easy jump to say that you have and every single person on the face of the earth has experienced the riches of God. God gives the rain, he gives food to eat, he gives a fire to keep warm, he gives water to refresh the thirst, just real basic things, blue sky, uh, warm sun, you know, green grass, beautiful mountains, people to love, and on and on and on. Whatever it is that you enjoy doing, the Lord has given that to you from his hand. You have experienced the riches of God in practically every minute of your day. Now, here in verse 4, those riches are summed up in three words. They're in everything, but they're summed up in three words. Two of them are ones we've looked at already. Verse 4 says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his, here's the three that it wants, he wants to draw attention to, riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience. Here's our current word, kindness, Christotes, a thought process that responds to people with appropriate words or actions that fit the situation in the sense of what's upright and righteous. And I think you can classify a lot of the Lord's blessing on your life that way, can't you? The kindness of the Lord where he responded to you with what was fitting to the situation that was a blessing to you and in the sense of what's upright and righteous. That's how God responds to people. Kind deeds, nice benefits, advantages, helpful things. These are all the kindnesses of God, okay? And every person on the face of the earth has experienced it. And the second word is one we don't see in our current passage, but it's a good reminder of what godly character traits look like and how they go together. And that word is tolerance. And Nekomai comes as part of the riches God pours on people. Tolerance is holding back. The idea of God withholding punishment. Here it represents a suspense of wrath, which must eventually be exercised unless the sinner accepts God's conditions. So the idea God has, the, God, the riches of God people have experienced are his kindnesses, which are appropriate responses that fit the situation and what's good and upright, and also tolerance. See, that's another thing that people who think they're moral and upright just kind of live in the life and do the thing that they do. They don't realize that they are experiencing the riches of God's tolerance. Why? Well, because they're in open rebellion against him. They haven't acknowledged that he has created all things. They haven't acknowledged the Savior that he sent in their place on the cross. And they pretty much do whatever they want, satisfy themselves, do what they want with what they have, and really uh, thumb their nose at God and they don't really care. Well, then you've experienced the tolerance of God. Because when you blaspheme God or you do something against the Lord or you sin in a way that he said not to, and you know, a lot of people who are moral say, well, I don't sin. Well, let's start with God's top 10. Have you ever stolen anything? And most people will say yes. And so if you've stolen something, you are a thief, right? And I mean, you, you see where we're going, right? Have you ever... You know, have you ever imagined uh, thoughts about someone who's not your wife or your husband? Okay, if you have, then you are a adulterer. Okay, so you get it. So of all God's rules, he has top ten. You've probably broken four or five of them, maybe four or five of them this week. So get it out of your mind that you're not a sinner. You are. You just don't know it, okay? Or you haven't thought about it long enough to realize this. So you've experienced God ki God's kindnesses, the goodness of your life. You're surrounded by those things. And you've also experienced the riches of God's tolerance, which means he's held back his wrath from you and allowed you to continue to exist in your own little world, thinking everything's perfectly fine. And then there's another one that we looked at. It's a gift we looked at last week, patience. We looked at it just briefly this morning. That's the quality of self-restraint in, in the face of provocation, which doesn't hastily retaliate. So you've experienced his patience. His tolerance and his patience are both part of his riches. You've experienced them along with his kindness. And so God's not willing that any perish and all come to the knowledge of the truth. We see that over and over in the scriptures. And because he feels that way, he sent his son to a manger taking on human form to be abused and rejected and murdered by the men he spoke into being. And even so, he's patient. So good people will be held accountable for the kindness of God, which refers to the benefits that God gives. They'll be held accountable for the tolerance of God, which is the judgment he does not give, and the patience of God, which refers to the duration of both of those. So for long periods of time, God is kind, and for long periods of time, God is tolerant, and the Hebrew expression for this can be found in Nehemiah 9.17. 
You are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Isn't that great? He's known that way. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, as well as Joel chapter 2, verse 13. Now return to the Lord your God. Why? Because you're far from him, and he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, abounding in loving kindnesses. See, this is the riches verse 4 speaks about. It's not just kindness and tolerance and patience. It is kindness and tolerance and patience at their best. See, it is the example, two of those ones we've already looked at, that are required responses from us, enduring responses. And this is God's riches of those things. And so it's no surprise to us, then, I guess, these are exactly the things that Paul's referring to. The old theologians called it common grace, a theological term of God's providence. He provides these things to people. In other words, God is good, and he pours out his goodness, and he withholds his judgment, and he does it for a long time. Psalm 52, verse 1. Why do you boast, O evil man, O mighty man? Why do you boast? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. You are there by God's kindness. Why do you boast? It's because his loving kindness has endured. Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Psalm 33, verse 5. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Psalm 145, 9. The Lord is good to all. His mercies are over all of his works. You get it, don't you? Psalm 107, verse 8. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. God was good to Israel, wasn't he? He was very patient. He was good to the people of Noah's time. He waited 120 years to allow them to repent and while Noah built an ark and preached repentance he was so patient with Judah and Israel he made it almost 800 years before he took them into captivity he's been very patient with the nations Acts says the time of ignorance he overlooked even though what could be known about God was visible time of their ignorance the time of their uh, worshiping things besides him he overlooked and God is wonderfully patient with us today I mean just look around the world People do what they want at a pretty rapid rate, don't they? Pretty much indulge in every kind of, of sinful behavior. Uh, the divine law of God, of God is trampled underfoot constantly. Uh, God himself is openly despised. His name is blasphemed openly on a regular basis. And it's amazing that he doesn't strike dead the people who do that. He has every right to, doesn't he? We have no obligation on God that we would endure one second after we broke his law. And yet we are the benefits of the riches of God. Scripture is pretty clear about that. Because his patience is salvation. Remember we read that last time? Paul said, Jesus put his patience on display in enduring my blasphemy and enduring my arrogance and all of that so that I could come to faith. See? And it's, it, what's amazing as, as you think about this, if you've never thought about the riches of God, if you've ever thought for a moment that God's unjust, because usually that goes along with it. You know, people who, who are moral, they think God's, well, if there is a God, he's really unjust. I mean, look at the world and all the things that are around and going on in the world. It's just a mess. And God's really pretty bad at doing what he's doing. I mean, they say stuff like that, right? If there is a God, it's ridiculous. He's either powerless or he doesn't care. See? And when you say stuff like that and you haven't realized the riches of God that have been poured out on you, you just reveal how easy it is to learn to exploit the goodness of God. The only reason you can even say that is because he is tolerant and patient and kind. See. Now, back to the last part of Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do you think lightly of the riches and tolerance and patience, catch this, not knowing that the kindness of God, what does it do? supposed to lead you to repentance you've been a you've been a beneficiary of the kindnesses of god you don't even think about it you think light in other words barely a thought ever crosses your mind that what you have may have been provided by god and his graciousness and his kindness and his tolerance and his patience but that kindness of god is leads you to repentance and i think we could say that god has endured in kindness toward you wouldn't you I mean, that's fair to say. And he did it to lead you to what? 
repentance, right? He endured in kindness towards you, and he did it to lead you to repentance. Kindness is based in a thought process in place that responds to people with appropriate words or actions that fit the situation. So how did God respond to you in kindness to fit the situation you were in? We're about to celebrate that, aren't we, in a month. God's kindness is, is, is designed to cause people to turn from sin to him. That's the definition of repentance, see? Just turn from sin to him. It's designed to cause men who are filled with evil to long for God and God's goodness, and that's what Paul wants, and that's what we want. And Paul understands this attribute of God that leads to his conversion is the same attribute that's part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit's presence in the life of all who know Christ as their Savior. And that fruit reflects the heart of God and works in accomplishing the ministry of reconciliation. And this is why Paul was commended to the church, and that's how you're committed. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 is a great illustration. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, in other words, you were born again, so you were dead in your sin. That's a euphemistic of being born again. You were raised up with Christ. That's, the Bible looks at you. If you don't know have a relationship with Christ, to God through Christ, you are dead in your sin. So they can say, then, if you do have a relationship to God through Christ, you have been raised with Christ. Now, because you're born again, then, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God and set your mind on the things above and not on things that are on the earth. And then Paul makes some parenthetical statements and then a few verses later he says this. This really gets to the heart of our illustration. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, so in other words, uh, you are one of those who is born again. The Lord has chosen you. You're born again. You're holy and you're beloved. Put on a heart of compassion. So it's going to give you kind of a laundry list here of things that should be visible for you because you've experienced the kindnesses of God and because you've been raised with Christ and you're seeking the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and you're setting your mind on the things above and on the things of the earth. So what are the things above? Well, a heart of compassion and then here's our word, kindness. See? Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and another we've looked at, patience. So it's just everywhere, right? And what's that look like? Well, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so should you also. That's what it looks like, see? It's, it's not just isolated to Paul saying, hey, you're, I'm committed to you in the ministry because I showed you patience. I'm committed to you in the ministry because I have been kind to you, right? I'm committed to you in the ministry because I've received those things from the Lord, I respond then that way to one another. This is what that's supposed to look like when you've put on Christ or when you've been raised with Christ, you've been chosen of God, see? And, and my, uh, you know, as I was thinking this week, imagine what the church would look like or could look like if put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and bear with one another and forgive each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. It doesn't matter what it is. It just takes up a very very broad scope, doesn't it? Whoever has a complaint against anyone, whatever our petty complaints may be against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so you should you also. Imagine what the church could look like if those things were not considered suggestions. I know they're suggestive, but that's not really what I wanted to do today. You know, I don't want to respond that way. If, how would the church look if those things right there were not considered suggestions? And those are hard things. And they're holy things, aren't they? That's what holiness looks like in the life of the believer. Kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, see? They're hard, holy things. And so that his reader understands this and the battle that is in there with all of that, look at the next several responses because it's, it's, it certainly wasn't Paul just rolling over and, and, and not ever saying anything substantive. Paul, Paul isn't va you know, vacating the speaking the truth, right? Just because he's kind, he's not saying, okay, uh, I, I can't ever respond to someone in a hard thing, see? It's like we talked about before, you know, when someone's walking in sinfulness, you have an obligation to, to bring that truth to that person in love and in kindness, see? He's not vacating all of that. Paul isn't abandoning reproof just because he's kind and patient. You still reprove, see? You still correct. And he appears to pick up some intensity here. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 6. So he says, and we've looked at these already, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness. Now he just starts building, and I, I can, you can kind of get the sense of intensity. 
in the Holy Spirit. So it's even broader, right? In the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, and in the power of God by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. So it just kind of swells up, kind of a crescendo at the end. I just love this. So we're going to look at at least one more if we have time. Catch this, and we're going to see this next time. Even though he, he, he's getting all of this right and working hard, again, it doesn't guarantee you know, some great outcome. Obviously, Paul is committing himself to the church because he, he endures in purity, he endures in knowledge, he endures in patience, he endures in kindness, he endures in the Holy Spirit, he endures in genuine love to them, he is in the word of truth, and he endures in the power of God and by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand of the left. And so he's responding well, but that doesn't mean automatically everything is going to go well, right? Because look at the, the very next, uh, as we finish this section, we'll see this next time, he responds that way, and then this is his experience, by glory and dishonor by evil report and good report. It's like irony everywhere, right? I mean, you wouldn't think they would go together, but this is kind of how they go together. Paul is committed to the church, regarded as deceivers, and yet true. Everybody thinks you're a liar, but you're telling the truth, right? As unknown, yet well-known. Who is he? What does he do? As dying, yet behold, we live. As punished, yet not put to death. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. And so just because you you're committed to the church by doing the things you're supposed to do it doesn't mean it's all going to be sweet all the time there's these there's these uh just seemingly opposite things stuck together constantly in spite of the commendable character of paul he lived his life in a constant state of irony and, and with all the honor he felt by working together with god right remember we said that the first thing we understand from paul's statement in verse one is that we get the honor of working together with him he has that honor of working together with god and the hardship he had to deal with see and the way he responded you'd think that everyone would have been keen on keeping him around and, and responding positively to him but it, the reality was that what happened on a regular basis seemed absurdly contrary to what we would expect of a guy who was faithful, see? And if it wasn't so sad, it could almost be amusing when you do what you're supposed to do and then you don't really receive the, re the response that you want to receive. In fact, it's like the opposite thing. It's, it's absurd, isn't it? And Paul sometimes refers to this irony sarcastically to make a point. Uh, he did it in 1 Corinthians 14. You remember this? He said, um, we're fools for Christ's sake, but you're prudent for Christ." We're weak, but you're strong. You're distinguished, but we're without honor. He was just describing the reality of it, right? And just throwing it up there so they could see the absurdity of all of this response. He's going to do it again later in this letter, and we'll see it. But that's the, that's the mark of ministry, see? And I think it's safe to say when you want to see a ministry that has the characteristic traits of being commended, then you're going to see this type of absurdity in it, Okay? This back and forth stuff and stuff that's together that shouldn't be. Uh, the right type of ministry is going to be marked by the opposite extreme responses all the time. See. And so that's where we're headed. Paul takes us there with his letter and, and they're comforting words he gives, especially to those who labor in the ministry of reconciliation. If you're not doing anything, this probably doesn't matter. But if you're laboring in the ministry of reconciliation as an ambassador, then these are comforting words to you. Let's look at the last two voluntary responses. Verse 6, Paul begins to pick up his intensity before we close for today. Those two responses are in the Holy Spirit and in genuine love. The first response just shows the focus of Paul's responses. He's already mentioned two of the fruit of the Spirit, patience and kindness. Both of those were key in his salvation. And he has mentioned uh, one gift of the Spirit, knowledge, which kept him from getting off topic and brought him to maturity. And so he says then, in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. And I think he's just letting them know that he's not picking and choosing. Not picking ones and not picking other ones that he isn't as comfortable with or doesn't want to, doesn't want to manifest. This is where Paul finds his power. All the rest of the desires and the gifts and the fruit, these are all pursued to the full. And you've noticed this before, but look again at the relationship uh, of Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 and the Word of God and how that all works out. The Holy Spirit is where the power is. Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. 
Now, Holy Spirit, that's where the power is. We see the Word of God dwelling richly, and it has with it some symptoms. Um, wisdom, teaching and admonishing each other. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs are in your heart. That's part of what's uh, the, the response to being in the Word. Singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. And then compare that to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And here the Apostle Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, that's excess, that's uh, wasted time. So don't be controlled by wine, that's wasted, but be filled with the Spirit. Now again, so letting the Word dwell in you richly has some things that will be responses of that. Now look at this, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sounds like we're saying the same thing, doesn't it? Singing and make a melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And you'll notice, as you look through, although the verses aren't identical, that the symptoms are the same. And it shouldn't surprise us then that the benefit of dwelling in the Word of God or the Word of Christ should be the same as the benefit of being filled with the Spirit of Christ, should it? Should it surprise us that dwelling in the Word of Christ should produce the same results as letting the Spirit of Christ dwell in us richly. That shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because this voluntary effort isn't picking and choosing. Paul says, this is how I respond to everything that comes along. And because of that, he was commended to them. And, and number 14, if you're keeping track, as you think about these commending responses, it works the same way for you. You're commended in your responses to the extent that you are filled with the Spirit, or letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And this is a choice you make, see. You know, don't say, Lord, I want to be more kind. Uh, Lord, I want to be more patient. I want to have more peace. And then ignore the pathway for those things to be in control. Because those are the fruit of the Spirit. And you're not going to have them unless you're dwelling richly in the Word of God, letting the Spirit of God dwell in you richly. So, again, it's just very basic stuff. This isn't groundbreaking. It's, it's, but it's fundamental. You want to go down, go back, and make sure that you're doing it correctly so that you can build in strength, then this is, where the, this is what that looks like, see? And if this is your habit, then Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 says, this is going to resonate with you, but I say, Paul says, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. So when you're not filled with the Spirit or we're not letting the Word dwell in you richly, then you can't possibly, you can't possibly walk by the Spirit. You get that? It's impossible for you to do it if you're not dwelling richly in the Word of God. See, when the difficult times come and the difficult people and you have to respond to them, your first, catch this, your first response isn't gonna be what you would have hoped it to be it's going to be what the flesh normally says, okay? So if you're saying when your husband provokes you or your wife provokes you, what the flesh would normally say, here's a big secret. The word of Christ is not dwelling in you richly, okay? And when you respond to another believer in a fleshly manner, get this. If your first response is fleshly, then the word of Christ is not dwelling in you richly, okay? You may be reading the Bible every single day, but you are not reading it with comprehension. You're just covering to get to the next chapter so you can get through by the end of the year, okay? It's got to dwell in you richly because your first response says where you are, see? Because the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit sets its desire against the flesh, see? For these are in opposition to one another. So the residual presence of sin in your life, believer, is in opposition to what the spirit wants to do, so that you may not do the things that you please. What, what do you mean? It just means that you wanted to do one thing and respond one way as a believer, but you didn't because you're, these, these things are in opposition and the Spirit of Christ is not dwelling in you richly. So this is the way you'd like to respond, the way to keep your testimony, uh, the way to be commended will be temporarily out of your reach, see, and that never puts you in good company or accomplishes anything that will last, see. But if you make it your aim, to be in the Holy Spirit, see? It's really the heart of everything. The way all the rest will be in reach 
will be because, like Paul, you endured in the Spirit. That means that he walked in the Spirit and that he enjoyed the fullness of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, the comfort of the Spirit, the joy of the Spirit, the freedom of the Spirit, all of that. And he didn't grieve the Spirit, right? He didn't quench the Spirit. He didn't frustrate the Spirit. These are things we've talked about before. You do all these things by walking apart from where the Lord would have you. And as a result, the Spirit of God was in control of him. And it was in the Spirit that he worked and he served and he prayed and he ministered and he lived. And that's where you could be too, see? And then lastly for today, in genuine love. A Hugh Pucritos, genuine, it's a compound word, ah, which just means negative or without, and hupokritomai, which is where we get our word hypocrisy. So genuine is just without hypocrisy. That's what that means. So the idea is an affectionate, brotherly love that is genuine without hypocrisy, sincere this is the decision to love that's love of the will he loved the way God has taught us to love, remember way back in Romans chapter 5 verse 5 we were looking at our security in Christ and our hope and Paul says this as an illustration here he says and hope does not disappoint the hope we have in our salvation is made clear to us how. Because the love of God has been, here it is, poured out. Echo, that's the word for gushing out lavishly. God is not up there with an eyedropper. You know, I don't want to overdo this love for them. Um, God's not like us. You know, we do it with an eyedropper, right? And God says, uh, Paul says, but the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. God's love is not dripped on us one drop at a time. It's profusely poured out. So our hearts can be filled with a sense of his love and, and get a sense of what operating in the love of Christ looks like and feels like. See, So when you think about the ministry of reconciliation and why operating in the love of God is so important, think of Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's everybody. That was everybody. That's a lot of people still. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. If you don't have a relationship to God through Christ, you, you classify as the ungodly. And at the right time, Christ died for you. Now catch this. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. In other words, somebody who's really good, you might... You might be able to convince somebody to do it. Maybe somebody would die for a pretty good person. Though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But, verse 8, God demonstrates his own, here it is, love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What kind of love is the love of God? because this is the definition that Paul is referring to in our passage in 2 Corinthians 6.6. 6. This is the kind of love he's referring to. Romans 5.6 says, while we were still helpless, asthenes, without strength, impotent, helpless to do what? Well, frankly, anything to please God, anything to fix your sin problem, without strength to overcome sin's hold on your life, impotent against Satan, vastly undervaluating the riches God has poured out on you as we talked about before helpless to overcome the world without strength to overcome death impotent against hell all those things you have no power over they have power over you helpless to live a righteous life without strength to settle the war with God that's what it means to be helpless Romans eight seventeen says hostile towards God at enemy with God the end of Romans 5 6 says we were ungodly we were the opposite of God that's where you are if you're not reconciled to Christ Reconciled to God through Christ. Just helpless, period. So the Bible says, here are these ungodly, powerless, helpless people. Amazing. The Bible also says that God is absolutely holy, absolutely pure. Looked at people who were repulsive to his holy nature and the very opposite of everything he is, and he loved them. How much? Verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Those three words, uh, one in the Greek. Karios, which means in the fullness of time, in the moment set aside for that purpose. And then verse 6 again says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ what died for the ungodly. I suppose we could understand it from our perspective. If God would have loved the good and the godly and the nice and the helpful and the moral people, see, and the pure people, but the mystery of divine love is that he loved the ones who were the opposite of all of that. 
which really is everyone. I mean, it's only your own perspective that makes you think that you're not that you're not that bad or not as bad as someone else, right? It's it's kind of subjective comparing yourself to somebody else beside you, right? But the fact of the matter is that everybody falls into that category. See. And the mystery of the divine love is that he loved the ones who were the opposite of that. So see, it's, isn't it great to know that God doesn't love you because you're so lovely? See, me either, right? This is Paul's model and ours too. God didn't look down on us to say, oh, they are so irresistible, right? In the flesh, not in the spirit, in the flesh, our love is object-oriented, isn't it? We, we are attracted by the nature of some object, right? I mean, we basically love because of the nature of the object that attracts us or because... Uh, they love us or we hope that they could or whatever. Human love is based on the object, see? God's love is based on his will and it's built into his nature. And Romans 5, 6 says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly on behalf of the ungodly or for the sake of the ungodly, see? Galatians three thirteen emphasizes a little bit more. It says Christ became a curse for us or on our behalf. What's that mean? Well, it just means there's a curse on you, Right? Because when you break God's law, you're under a curse, curse of death, physical and spiritual separation from him forever. You're under that curse and punishment that follows it because you've just lived your own life and did what you want and that's what you want to do, be excluding God from everything. Well, everybody gets what they want. Not everybody likes what they're going to get. See? You're going to get exactly what you want. You'll get all of your sin on yourself and you'll bear it. See? But Christ became a curse for you. He took the punishment on the cross for you. See? Second Corinthians 5.21, he was made to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's a, those are amazing thoughts, aren't they? You, you can't plumb the depths of those things. We, we, we looked at 2 Corinthians 5.21 not that long ago, but those are amazing thoughts. That he died with such love that he did it for the unlovely, unlovable, godless people. And that's so different from us, see. Romans 5 verse 7 says, for one will hardly, that's with a lot of thought, die for a righteous man, though perhaps if you thought about it quickly, for a good man, someone would dare uh, or, or show the courage to even to die. That's the idea. Sometimes there are situations where one person will give up their life for another, but, but the point is made here by the negative being applied. What is it? Nobody is going to die for a bad person, okay? Nobody. Nobody, that is, except Christ. You see? And the next verse really makes it the illustration clear, but God, verse 8, but God demonstrates, that's the word for proved, God proved his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, beloved, please listen. If this passage doesn't drive right through your heart, then you don't know how much God hates sin or you don't know how sinful you are, okay? One of those two has got to be true if that doesn't drive straight through your heart. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, the infinitely holy God Habakkuk 1.13 says, You whose eyes are too pure to approve evil, you cannot look on wickedness with favor. God who hates every sin, every evil thought, every deed, every word, has shown his fury against it so many times in the worldwide flood, in the Sodom and Gomorrah destruction, and so many other catastrophes which just show us what should happen all the time to punish sin, except that he's patient and he endures in forbearance, right? And he's kind. So he doesn't always give everything that's, that's deserved all the time. that he could reach out and love impotent, helpless sinners. What a wonderful, amazing example of agape love. And this is precisely the kind of love that Paul says has got to be part and parcel of an approved, uh, a commended workman. And what a great motivation to show it, considering the surpassing benefit of each of us and what we've received as a result of that love. Right? I mean, it's always good to remember your chains, isn't it? And Paul never forgot that. It wasn't ever far from his mind. And if this illustration of the love uh, Paul is talking about, uh, God is willing to send his love, set his love on us into redemption when we were shamed and miserable sinners. Will he not keep us redeemed when we were less wretched by his grace? See, isn't that so great? The love, the very love that bridged the gap when we were unlovely is the very love that keeps us when we're less wretched. See, if it'll reach out to a godless sinner, it's gonna hang on to a sometimes sinning saint, right? That's just, that's for free. Just keep that in, in your pocket, okay? So it was a sincere and devoted love for his friends and for the people that didn't like him. And, and, and all his church people, whether they loved him or whether they had turned on him, he loved them sincerely without hypocrisy, see? And that's a willful act 
to do it. Volitional response. You can do it because the Holy Spirit's there. It is the first of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so you can do it. The Lord's not going to ask you to do something that you can't respond uh, correctly with. Okay? So all of the church, people, whether they loved him, whether they hated him, they turned on him, he loved them sincerely. He loved them the way God has taught us to love. And it it was no sham. And there was no pretense there. See, it was not a facade. It wasn't a front. No plastic smile. See, no mask. It was the Lord's love reflected through him. And we know he loved them enough to bear a sentence of death on himself all the time, don't we? This is how he responded to them. He was okay with it. He's okay and do the ministry, knowing that the Lord might take him, and if he wasn't done with him, he could bring him back to life and finish up with him, right? This is how Paul loved. And Paul was commended to them because of his enduring response of love. It's how he really felt in his heart. And this is how we have to respond, see? And those are high, holy things. Hard. Hard things. But if we keep in mind what we just went over, Romans chapter 5, and when we were unlovely, God loved us, it makes it much easier to do that, doesn't it? The saints who are around you, who are a lot less unlovely than they were, right? A sometimes sinning saint, you can bridge the gap there, can't you? Because you have the benefit of the gap being bridged to you. And I wonder, again, what the church may become if these responses become our first and enduring responses. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer, if you would. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be in your word, to to listen to uh, these words from the Apostle Paul as he instructs the church, as he uh, attempts to commend himself to them as they're so unkind to him and cruel. And he responds back in love and in kindness. And Father, we're so grateful for that example and what that's supposed to look like. If we want to be commended, it's not groundbreaking stuff. It's the stuff of the spiritual gifts. It's the stuff of of fruit of the spirit that has to be visible we've looked at those things all along i think as grand suggestions and boy wouldn't that be nice and i wish i could respond that way and all kinds of foolishness like that but you can respond we can respond that way the holy spirit is there helping us respond that way and it's our disobedience that keeps us from responding in that way we can blame it on our past we can blame it on our you know things that happened to us we can blame it on other people around us we can do all that it's just shifting it away from where the true where the true responsibility lies and it's our Uh, It's our volitional response to interact with one another and respond enduringly in this way. And Father, it it is in my mind, of course, always that uh, there may be some who sit here who have no relationship with you through Christ, and so these things seem to be good ideas. It'd be great to be more patient with people and and have more love towards people and respond in such a way that we're kind to them. But quite frankly, that's, that's beyond our reach, apart from our relationship to you through your son and not only is it beyond our reach it's the least of our worries because we stand condemned a curse on us helpless to do anything to please you to do anything to fix our sin problem which we have in abundance without any strength to overcome any of the sins patterns in our life all of our things we want to keep hidden from our wife or our husband the things that we do wish nobody knew we don't even live up to our own our own expectations let alone God's impotent against Satan helpless to overcome the world without strength to overcome death death is there it's coming there's no way you're going to overcome it and for you apart from Christ it is a continuance in a life beyond the grave in punishment forever you will be aware you'll know what's going on you'll know why you're there and you will be there to pay the debt of your sin when even though you were hostile to God God bridged the gap through Jesus while you were ungodly you bridged the gap for us while we were helpless and you loved us at the right time and you sent Christ to die for the ungodly of whom we are a part It's a love response based on your nature that you're not willing that any perish but all come to the knowledge of salvation. So right now where you sit, you can confess your sin and repent. It's turn from sin to God. Sorry for what you've done. Knowing that Christ has died for our sin according to the scriptures and was buried 
and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. For all have sinned, Romans 3.23 says, and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody, same starting point. And Romans 6.23 says, and the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. You can avoid the payment for your sin, but you have to leave it right here. All your aspirations, everything you've wanted to do, all the thoughts about your own grandeur and all that, and your own morality, they all are undone. Everything belongs to him. You give up your life to find it. Confess your sins to him. Repent. Romans 10 says, confess Jesus as Lord. And believe God has raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. Saved from yourself, saved from your helplessness, saved from your power of sin in your life, saved from hell. Saved unto a life lived for him, a life lived with purpose and with meaning, a life everlasting in God's presence, enjoying his company where he wanted you to be all along. It's your choice to respond today. Now is the day of salvation, Paul says. Now is the accepted time. If you've responded in that way, before you leave, will you take the card that's in front of you in the chair? Do you fill that out? Fill that out on the front, on the back. Flip it over and say, I pray to receive Jesus as my Savior today. Hand that to me before you go. Be my joy to pray with you, to put in your hands things to help you grow, uh, to rejoice with your new understanding of who God really is, who he's always been, but now you finally understand that you're not the Lord of your life and that he is. And all the joy that that brings will be yours. Lord, thank you today for the work of your word. It always comes back, uh, accomplishing what you sent it out to do. Pray that we who know you as uh, our, uh, Christ as our Savior and have a relationship with you through him, I pray that our lives will begin to reflect these spiritual fruit. No excuses. We might respond in such a way that you might show us as we dwell in your word richly that our first responses begin to change what joy that is to know we can respond in pressures and hardships with patience and faith, not in worry and fret. And so many other things that you have said that your, your burden is easy. Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. We desire that, Father, and to respond in such a way that we're committed regardless of the situation. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.